Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Jason Bedrick, a research fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. For more information on CLT's mission and details about upcoming test dates, head to www.cltexam.com slash get started. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. My name is Soren Schwab, VP of Partnerships here at CLT, and today we have a very exciting guest. Mr. Jason Bedrick is a former member of the New Hampshire State Legislature. He's currently a research fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Uh, Jason holds a master's uh, in public policy from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. And along with his amazing work in education policy, Jason is also a proponent of classical education and was recently a featured speaker at a CLT Classical Education Summit in Austin, Texas. Jason, an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, well, we'd like to start off by talking about our guests' early education. Uh, so what was what was school like for you? Where did you grow up? Did you go to brick and mortar schools, K-12? Uh, did you go to public, private? What was it like? I, I did. So I uh, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, fewer than 10,000 uh, people. Uh, and I spent uh, my formative years in a public school. Uh, so all the way through eighth grade, uh, I was in a public school. Uh, but then uh, my town was so small, we did not have a high school. And they used to have a a compact with a neighboring town that had a, a very good public school. Uh, and so my parents always thought I would end up at that high school. Uh, but shortly before I entered eighth grade, uh, that deal fell apart and they entered into a deal with a different town uh, that had a pretty good public school for high school. But it was also known to have some some drug issues, some fighting issues and some things like that. Uh, and I knew that some of my friends were exploring other options. And so uh, even though I, I grew up in a relatively secular Jewish home, um, we decided that I would go to a Catholic high school. Uh, so I did I did spend time at a Catholic high school uh, where I really actually developed an interest in religion. Uh, I, I, I was the first non-Catholic student to receive the religious studies award upon graduation, <laughs> uh, and, uh, then went to a, a private college. So I've, I've sort of, I've had a taste of a, uh, a variety of different types of, uh, you know, public, private, religious, secular education environments. Was there something that, that, that drew your family to the Catholic school or was it more of a, away from 
I think it was a little bit of both. I think it was, you know, obviously it wasn't the Catholic component that was uh, interesting us. It was the, they had a reputation for academic excellence. Uh, my best friend was going there that, that played a role. I think uh, he was my neighbor uh, and he was a devout Catholic. Um, and so I uh, developed a, a very strong affinity for Catholics uh, while I was there. I really uh, appreciated. They were very warm and uh, welcoming. Uh, and, uh, but, but also just sort of, you know, one of the things that you could do at a religious school that you can't do at a traditional public school is ask the big questions, right? These are some of the things that, you know, you don't want to offend anybody. And so you avoid asking those questions at, at, at the public school. But, you know, the most important questions, is there a God? What is the nature of God? What is the nature of his relationship with humanity? Uh, you know, are these ancient texts, are they worth engaging with? What can we learn from them? Uh, these are the sorts of things that you can get into in a religious school that that the public schools ignore entirely and and really, therefore, end up ignoring some of the foundations of Western civilization, uh, I think greatly to our detriment. Uh, and so the opportunity at a Catholic school to engage with those texts and with those ideas uh, was, it, it was enriching for my soul, even though, you know, I ended up not ever converting, but I became uh, a much more uh, religious observant Jew. Uh, so, and I, I can trace that back to my maybe an unorthodox path, but I, I trace that back to my Catholic education. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, so you go through college um, and then you end up at, uh, at, at the Kennedy school of government at Harvard. What was that? What was that process like? Were you in undergrad already interested in, in educational policy and public policy? Um, how did you end up uh, at Harvard? Uh, yeah, I, I was, uh, I actually, um, when I was at business school, like a good Jewish boy, I went to business school to, uh, you know, learn what I needed to learn to take over the family business, uh, which was furniture. But uh, while I was in business school, I learned uh, that my real passion was public policy. Um, you know, a few weeks into my freshman year was 9-11. And that just sort of changed my focus first to foreign policy and then to domestic policy and, and specifically education policy. Uh, I always loved to read. I loved education. Uh, I never thought about necessarily being a teacher, but I, I liked the field. And I, I ended up writing a, a paper on school choice. Uh, so the the idea was I had to tackle an, an issue and the issue I wanted to tackle was um, inequitable access to education. It seemed to me that I had fantastic opportunities um, basically as an accident of birth, right? Uh, although I, I jokingly say I chose my parents well, uh, but that's the, you know, obviously we don't, <laughs> well we don't get to choose our parents. And so I was very fortunate that my parents could afford to live in a district that had a high quality public school and that, um, when that was no longer the case for high school, they could afford to pay private school tuition. And it seemed to me that the American promise of equality of opportunity is meaningless unless all children have access to a quality education. So my, the question for me was, well, how do you, how do you ensure that? 
well, maybe we just need to spend a lot more money on education, right? I mean, that's the that's what you hear all the time as well. We're just not spending enough. Well, as it turns out, as I researched it, I found that we were spending far more per pupil than almost any other uh, you know developed nation. And so, what what is going on here? What is the issue? And it, it seemed to me that Milton Friedman got it right, which was that even if there's a case that the the states should subsidize education to make sure that that all families can afford a good quality education, it doesn't make sense that the government should be the one running the schools, that you'd be in a much better position if you had private entities running the schools and parents could choose the ones that work best for their kids. Uh, so I ended up writing a paper in college on that. At the same time, there was a, a bill in the New Hampshire state legislature, my home state. Uh, it was just for public school choice, not private school choice, but I it failed by one vote. 151 to 152. Uh, and it was devastating to me. And I remember my professor saying, well, what are you going to do about it? I'm like, wow, well, like I'm a 21 year old kid. What do you mean I'm going to do? I'm going to complain to you. And that's it. Uh, but I ended up running for office. Uh, I, I failed the first time around by six votes, believe it or not, in a district of 40,000. Uh, but two years later, after college, I did a stint in, in yeshiva, sort of like a religious seminary where I was playing catch up. There's a, a lot to learn in Judaism. Uh, and, uh, you know, some have that experience where, you know, from a very young age, they're engaging, you know, with these texts, I was sort of behind. Uh, so I went to yeshiva for a couple of years. While I was in yeshiva, I got a phone call from some legislators asking me to run again. Uh, and I ultimately decided to do so. And I won the second time around. Uh, ostensibly to, you know, on, on a school choice platform, I wanted to pass a bill. My bill went down in flames, but I wanted to continue pursuing it. And so uh, I decided to get a, a master's degree in public policy. Uh, I was accepted into the, the Kennedy School. Uh, and it was while I, I was there that, that I worked with a local think tank in New Hampshire called the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, named for the real founding father and signer of the Declaration of Independence, not the fake TV president, uh, for those listening at home. Uh, and uh, we succeeded in uh, passing a school choice bill uh, that, uh, you know, we overrode a governor's veto. We uh, got a unanimous decision in our favor at the state Supreme Court, and it's uh, still in effect today. Wow, that is all fascinating. Um, I, I do kind of want to be a have sat in on that and that conversation with your with your dad when you told him, you know, it's not going to be the family business. It's going to be education policy. I'm sure he was he was delighted. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've, we've talked about this, this 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 concept of school choice, and and, and just a few weeks ago, I had um, Dr. Albert Cheng from the University of Arkansas. He's in the Department yeah. of Education Reform. Great guy. Um, and and I think Dr. Wolf is is kind of considered one of the fathers of of school choice. Um, so for maybe for our listeners who are not too familiar with 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 the concept of school choice, can you kind of break it down? What what is school choice? Um, and 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 what do you think are are why do you think it's it's so important? Sure. The school choice, there's a spectrum of policies that that fall under school choice, right? So uh, you know, at the one end of the spectrum, it could just be various forms of public school choice. So it could be interdistrict choice, right? You're going to a traditional public school, but it's not the one you're assigned to. It's you know it's outside of your zoned district. Uh, that's one form of school choice. Or you could have charter schools, which are sort of a public-private partnership. These are essentially privately owned and managed 
schools that operate like public schools, right? So they have to take all students who come, uh, at least for now, there may be some questions about this constitutionally, but at least for now, they have to be secular. Uh, and they they are subject to a variety of state accountability regulations, um, less so than the uh, traditionally, they have more autonomy than traditional public schools, but they are still, let's say, much more regulated than private schools. Uh, then you have um, various types of private school choice. Probably the most well-known known is the, the voucher idea. Uh, Milton Friedman didn't invent it. I mean, really, you can trace it all the way back to you know Thomas Paine and Common Sense, uh, John Stuart Mill and On Liberty, right? So in the 1700s, 1800s, they're writing about essentially private school choice. Uh, but in the modern era, Milton Friedman, I, I would say, did the most to popularize it starting in the 1950s. Uh, and the voucher is a coupon that you can, you know, with with a, a port, you know, the state's portion of per pupil spending that you can redeem at a private school. Uh, there's also something called a tax credit scholarship. Which, uh, that's the, you know, in New Hampshire, they have one. There's about... 20, almost 25 states that have uh, some form of tax credit scholarship these days. And they're like a voucher, except that they are privately funded. And people who donate to the scholarship organizations receive a tax credit, uh, anywhere from 50% to 100% of their contribution. Um, so Arizona was the first one. They have 100%. Uh, Florida was second. They've got one of the, you know, they have the largest tax credit scholarship program in the country. Uh, the third type, uh, which is, I would say, the most popular these days is called, you know, an education savings account. Now, this is not to be confused with college savings accounts. They're more similar to health savings accounts. I don't particularly like the name just because it gets confusing for that reason. But they are flexible spending accounts. Right. Uh, so like with the voucher, uh, in most cases, you're taking a, a portion of the state's per pupil funding. And instead of making a coupon, you're putting it into a, a restricted use bank account. And families can then use that to pay for things like private school tuition, tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula online learning, special needs therapy, and, and a wide variety of other things. And they can roll over unused funds from year to year to save for future expenses up to and including college. Oh, that's a lot to unpack here, right? And so when people hear school choice, they might think of one of those, maybe not, maybe not all of them. And so what you mentioned initially, I mean, is it basically just the, the, the idea that, that your zip code should not determine where you go to school, right? That's right. Okay. Um, and then for, you know, we at CLT, we work with uh, a lot of homeschool families. We do work with charter school families, um, but also a lot of, of private schools and a lot of private Christian schools. And I think, I think more and more schools are coming around the last, the last few years. But early on, I think there was a lot of skepticism around school choice. Uh, and mainly, and you mentioned those, those vouchers. Um, and from my understanding, uh, is that in some states, those vouchers come with strings attached, right? Where, where you're still kind of beholden to uh, to the state, to the government. Um, can you kind of speak to that and and uh, and and maybe, you know, what what some of the solutions would be um, that that we can get all the the, the the private Christian schools to to to, to rally behind this the school choice movement? Yeah, well, I would say you know skepticism is healthy, 
whenever it comes to some sort of, of government intervention. Uh, there are some states, you know, I, I think of Louisiana in particular, that have what are, in my view, particularly poorly designed programs that do come with a lot of strings attached. You know, so in Louisiana, for example, they require the state test. Uh, they require that you take every student that shows up uh, if you take, uh, you know, if you have, uh, if you take vouchers. They also require, um you know, price controls. So if you take the voucher, then you have to take that as the full value, even though it's less than half of what they're spending per pupil at the public schools. And so no coincidence that uh, two thirds of private schools in the state say, no, thank you. We're not going to participate in that type of program. Uh, other states, though, take a much lighter touch. None of those regulations are present uh, in Arizona or in Florida uh, are really most of the states that have uh, private school choice and none of the ESA programs. Uh, I think the ESA programs, it's a lot harder for the government to regulate them. And I see that as a feature and not a bug, right? Uh, because, you know, take price controls, for example. Well, if I can spend it in a hundred different places, what I'm going to, the government is now going to be regulating the price of, of books and tutors and curricula. Like this doesn't make any sense. Uh, so it makes it practically impossible for the government uh, to impose price controls in that sense. Uh, even when it comes to, you know, imposing a testing requirement. Uh, now there are some States that impose a, um, nationally norm reference testing requirement. And uh, I, I'm I'm okay with that, uh, especially the ones that it's just, you know, that the students have to take a test and the test is made available to the parents, not something that the government is then collecting these metrics and determining whether you can choose this or that provider based on how, you know, students perform on the test. Uh, but it is important that parents have information. And so we want to empower parents with that. And they have a menu, you know, they could take the CLT, if they wanted, they could take the SAT, they could take, uh, you know, the Iowa basic 10, whatever it is uh, that the parents want to take, but it has to be, you know, sort of a national test so they can get a sense of how their students are performing relative to other students and what their growth is like. Uh, but again, if you've got 10 different providers, if you're spending part of your week at a private school, but maybe you're doing hybrid homeschooling. So a part of it's at home and your home time, maybe part is with your parents and part is with a tutor, part is with an online course. Well, if even if the government were to collect that testing data, who exactly are they supposed to hold accountable? It's it's not really possible. The only person who's in a position to hold any of those entities accountable is the parents. And that's exactly as it should be. The parents are in the best position when they are empowered with school choice. Really, I should call it education choice. To say, you know, this provider is working, that education provider is not working. And so either I'm going to have a conversation with them and they're going to improve uh, or they're not. I'm going to go find somebody else who who will meet my child's needs. That's what you ultimately want at the end of the day. Uh, so, look, the the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Uh, and yes, there are those who want to regulate these programs. But frankly, uh there are a number of states where private schools and homeschoolers uh, are subject to fairly stringent regulations, and they're not accepting a dime of public dollars. So they can regulate you even without the public money. Uh, I think what we want ultimately is to move to a system that reflects the freedom and pluralism that this nation is founded on.
And that would be a system where the money follows the child's to the school that aligns with the family's values, uh, or I should say learning environments that aligns with the family's values and um, is the right fit for their particular child, uh, as opposed to one where the vast majority of kids uh, attend a government-run school that they are assigned to based on the location of their home. Very well said. And I, and I appreciate your bringing up um, things like assessment. Obviously, we're, we're in the assessment business, business and you know we support school choice. But ultimately, uh, without assessment choice, uh, there's never going to be a true school choice, right? Because right. who sets the standards, right? And, and that's still a way for, for the states to control, right? In Texas, if you have to take the STAR test, and that's the only one they're going to they're going to accept, right? That they can still kind of control what standards they want to uh, 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 want the students to have have mastered, um, versus you know saying, hey, here 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 are the options for for your family, like you said, that sure. align with it, with your educational educational values. It, it would make sense to have one single test if we lived in a world in which there was one right way to educate a child. Mm-hmm. We knew what that was. And we had good reason to believe that the government would implement policies <laughs> that would align with that. But none of those three conditions obtain. And therefore, we should not have a single test. We should have a variety of different types of competing standards. And we should allow parents to choose schools and learning environments that uh, are adhering to one or of a variety of different types of standards. And so they should say, you know what? Uh, I want to send my child to a classical school. Uh, I want to know how my child's doing in that classical school. And so I want to choose a school that is using the CLT. And I want to see some data, both on how the school is doing overall and how my particular child is doing using the CLT. Uh, Somebody else might say, well, you know, I want something entirely different. And so therefore, I, I want to, you know, some other standard that they're using. But what we really don't want is one type of standard imposed. It, it really reduces really in the long run, both the diversity of options and the overall quality of options, whereas competing standards actually elevate both. Well, you wrote an article on the success of, of this educational choice, school choice uh, movement. Um, and you said that 2021 uh, has been declared a breakthrough year for school choice. Uh, what were some of the the milestones um, and what contributed to this this this, this breakthrough um, in school choice, especially since, I guess, since COVID? Yeah, well, there were 19 states that passed uh, 23 newer expanded programs. I think, I think, actually, I think by the end it was 25 newer expanded programs. Uh, and so that was the biggest year that the school choice movement uh, had ever had. Uh, now, obviously, to a great extent, it had to do with uh, COVID. And really, I would say the the public school's response to COVID uh, shutting down and then staying shut down for far longer than parents had expected. Uh, you know, when, when parents see that the Catholic school down the street is open for business and that the kids there aren't getting sick and their parents aren't getting sick, but the school your child's assigned to is, is closed, that's a problem. Uh, also 2020, uh, early 2020 spring families, I think were very understanding, uh, you know, that this was, one of those black swan events and it caught schools off guard, but they were expecting that by the fall, the schools would have gotten their act together. And then when there was still chaos and closures in the fall and and even going into the spring of 2021, 
parents started getting very frustrated and looking for other options. Uh, also, the you know, Zoom school proved not only to be low quality, and I should note that this is not, I mean, there are some online schools that are very high quality because they are intentionally online and it is well thought out in advance. This was sort of emergency online school and schools were trying to essentially do the same thing, but over Zoom and that doesn't work out so well. Uh, and so not only were parents concerned about the quality, but they were also concerned about the politicization of the classroom. They were worried about the sorts of things that their children were learning that they were actually seeing, you know, from across the room, as opposed to, you know, just hearing about it from their kids at the dinner table or not hearing about it. Uh, and so there was a, a race to the doors and uh, families, you know, for the first time ever really were uh, you know, lighting up the switchboards, calling their legislators, telling them, Hey, this isn't working out for us. We want other options. Why can't the money that is not being used well in the school I'm assigned to just follow my child to the, the school that's open down the street? Uh, it's a private school and legislators listened. And so you had massive expansions, including, uh, West Virginia, you know, they allow the hope scholarship that they passed, which is a type of education savings account. Uh, was for it's almost universal, meaning every child in the state is eligible if they are either currently in a public school or they are entering kindergarten. Uh, and then this year, Arizona became the first state to pass an ESA that is truly universal. Arizona was the first state to pass an ESA 11 years ago, but it was originally limited just to students with special needs. They've expanded the eligibility a number of times in, in the last decade. Uh, but now, uh, potentially pending a a ballot referral uh so put a pin in it but uh assuming they either don't get the signatures or it uh wins in the ballot arizona will be the first state to truly offer educational choice to every single child and what a what news that was just a few days ago uh, and i think i i reached out to you right away with i don't know woohoo or exclamation mark something like that um but that was that was a big deal and you and you live in arizona right so um you're right Right there in the center um, it is I, I've read the uh, empowerment scholarship accounts. It's another term that I that I read specifically in Arizona. Is that similar to the education savings account? Is it just another word for it? Is there? A yeah, that? it's it's just the it's that's the program title. So here the ESAs are called empowerment scholarship accounts uh, in uh, in Florida, they are, they used to be called Gardner scholarship accounts. Uh, now there's a new name that's escaping me, uh, in West Virginia, they're called hope scholarships. Uh, but it's a uh, different names for the same thing. Same thing. Gotcha. Um, well, you know, th there's certainly still a lot of critics of, of school choice and, 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 and I guess some of the common complaints that you're hearing, most of them are answered in, uh, Cora DeAngelis is, uh, what is it called? The, the, uh, school choice myth. Um, yes, I have a chapter right. in that book uh, right yep. behind me by Corey DeAngelis and uh, Neil McCluskey from the Cato Institute. Uh, fantastic resource, uh, school choice myths, answers a wide variety of, of questions about, uh, you know, does school choice work? What are the effects? Mm -hmm. So on and so forth. Is it is it only going to benefit certain population? I guess right. if you could speak to that a little bit, I think that's even when, when I talk to some of my friends who, you know, are not educators um, or in the this kind of world, that's what they think, right? Is that, oh, school choice, that's just benefiting rich white families, um, which 
we know that's not the case. Uh, one, why do you think that is still kind of the perception of it? And, 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 and obviously, if you can refute that in like a few sentences. <laughs> sure. Uh, why is that the perception? Because the opponents of school choice find it politically profitable to, you know, push out that perception, uh, even though it is not the reality. If you look at the statistics, uh, African-American and Latino students uh, disproportionately benefit from these programs. Uh, take a look at Florida. Florida has uh, more than 100,000 students participating. They have the largest uh, school choice program, private school choice program uh, in the country. Uh, and uh, about 70% of the students are either uh, black or Hispanic or mixed race. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, it, it's just simply not true that it's, it's mostly for rich white kids. Also in Florida, um, uh, the, the median, uh, income of participating families is about $25,000. So, I mean, these are low income minority students who are the primary beneficiaries. Uh, another thing is people say, okay, well, fine. But what about kids with special needs, right? Private schools don't take students with special needs. Well, look at Arizona. Uh, now Arizona has a, a really good special needs funding formula, which gives, um, a significant amount of money for students with special needs. And they don't just say, well, if you have an IEP, you know, we're going to give you 10% more across the board or something like that. They really, they have a, a, a bunch of different weights, you know, so students who have an IEP because of, you know, things like, let's say ADHD or something, they're not going to get that much more, but students who have uh, cerebral palsy or down syndrome uh, or suffering from blindness or something like that, they're going to get much more support. And the ESA is 90% of the state portion. And so whereas the typical ESA student right now is getting about $7,000 in Arizona, uh, students with special needs are, are getting, you know, 10, 15, 20, even $25,000, depending on the severity of their special needs. And then what you find is that Private schools are willing to take that money because, you know, take a look at the Catholic schools, for example. You know, it's their mission to tend to the least among us, those who are the most disadvantaged. And now that these students are coming with the resources that they need to, uh, you know, hire the, the special staff that they need to address those students' needs, and they feel like, well, now we actually have the funding to properly take care of these students, they welcome them with open arms. What you've also seen in Arizona is the development of a number of schools specifically for students with special needs. Um, there's the Foundation for the Blind that runs a fantastic program. Uh, and don't forget, students who have blindness, uh, if they're born with blindness, they're usually suffering from a, a number of other conditions, uh, you know, some you know, more or less severe. Most of their students uh, at eighth grade climb a mountain blind students climbing a mountain. Uh, it's really, a, it's a phenomenal program. They have a very high degree of their students that, that ultimately go on to, uh, you know, college and, and, and have careers. Um, you know, in other words, they're, they're not dependent. They, they are productive contributing members of society, uh, which is good both for society and for them as, as individuals. So yeah, I, when you have school choice, I, the, the people who right, right now, I mean, going back to, you know, the rich white kids, they already have school choice. Okay. It's called parents who can afford to live in a good school district or pay tuition. That's the school choice they have. It's in the real estate market or it's through paying tuition. When you expand school choice, it is those who are currently the most choice deprived, the most disadvantaged who benefit the most. 
Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Um, so Arizona, you said put a pin in it, but it's looking really good. Um, what's next? What are you mentioned? You mentioned Florida. Um, I know that obviously there's some um, some races this 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 uh, this fall. What are some states we should look at next for potentially something similar? Uh, Florida has been making moves. Uh, they have, you know, they started with a, a very small program and grew it to the largest program um, in terms of sheer numbers. Uh, but they've also been expanding eligibility. And I think the next step for them is to follow Arizona. Uh, again, Arizona was the first with a tax credit scholarship. Florida was second. Arizona was first with an ESA. Florida was second. Arizona is the first to get to Universal. I think Florida is going to be uh, second. Um, although West Virginia might sneak in there and and, and get there too. Uh, other states, uh, Iowa came very close this year to passing an ESA. They passed it out of the House. Sorry, they passed it out of the Senate. It died in the House, but the governor um, was really on board with with passing an ESA. She got involved in some primaries and was supporting um, pro school choice candidates that were up against anti school choice candidates. She won uh, her candidates won eight out of nine races, and I think the ninth went to a runoff. So it hasn't been decided yet. I think that's going to lead to a a much more pro school choice House. Uh, not just, you know, the new pro school choice members, but I think some of those members that were opposed before may find it politically profitable to be in favor going forward. Uh, New Hampshire, uh, has, um, had the second largest, uh, in terms of eligibility school, uh, ESA, uh, they call them education freedom counts in New Hampshire. Um, students are from families earning up to 300% of the poverty line. Uh, which is about the medium, median income in the state are eligible. So uh, I think New Hampshire, there's been a lot of talk there about expanding it to everybody. I think, you know, that's another good, you know, another place. Uh, looking over at my map uh, on the wall, uh, Ohio, Indiana, possibly even Idaho. Uh, there's a number of states, uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. So there, there are a number of states where you have some uh, either governors or legislators that are rearing to go and you know pass universal choice. I don't know which one it's going to be. Uh, you know, like West Virginia kind of came out of nowhere and surprised us. Yeah, uh, right. uh, but, but I think look, now is the time. Uh, public sentiment is there. North of seventy percent of families mm -hmm. say that they support. Uh, education savings accounts and educational choice more broadly. Uh, and the main argument against it that you hear is that it's going to destroy public education, uh, which may have made sense 30 years ago when we didn't have school choice programs. But now you've got uh, you know a handful of states that have large, robust educational choice programs and have had them for a while. And when you look at states like Arizona, Florida, Indiana, Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, not only have their public school systems not collapsed, but they have seen tremendous gains over the last 20 years. Uh, that when you have school choice, it means that you don't have a captive audience anymore. And so the public schools, if they want to retain students, need to meet families' needs. So they have to up their game. And so really school choice is the rising tide that lift, lifts all boats in competition to, to this this market um well we could talk for hours about this jason this was super enlight enlightening um 
before we end with our with our last question that we always ask our guests, uh, how can people follow the great work that you're doing? Uh, websites, social media, what's the best way to follow your work? You can follow me on Twitter at Jason Bedrick. Uh, there's also the, the Heritage Center for Education Policies. Twitter is Heritage on Ed. Uh, and you can find us at the Heritage Foundation's website, heritage.org. Awesome. Well, so grateful for, for all the amazing work that you're doing. So this last one might be the most difficult question um, that we that we ask our guests. Uh, we always end the Anchored podcast um, asking about one text or one book that has been most impactful, most formative. So, Jason, what what work would you would you list there? Yeah, this one was this one. Well, it was easy and it was tough. Uh, so the, the easy answer is uh, the Bible. You know, Hebrew scripture in particular, and really the, the, the five books of Moses uh, has been the most impactful uh, book in my life, totally changed my trajectory. Uh, like all observant Jews, I, I read through the entire thing uh, each year and then uh, with commentaries. And so commentaries ranging from, you know, ancient to medieval to modern. Uh, and I will say that that one of the modern commentaries that has been most impactful is from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Uh, he has the Covenant and Conversation series, which is really phenomenal. Uh, I think this is a hidden gem that that non-Jews would really benefit from. Uh, so I, I just I can't recommend this highly enough. Uh, but I'm going to take that uh, in terms of policy uh, or politics. Uh, the, the one that was the most transformative for me was in college reading Thomas Sowell's Conflict of Visions. Uh, you know, it, you know, where he breaks down the constrained vision versus the unconstrained vision. Uh, elsewhere, he calls it sort of the tragic, uh, view of humanity versus, uh, the, uh, oh, what's the, the quest for cosmic justice, uh, right? That, uh, you know, like most young people, I was very idealistic uh, and I was very attracted to uh, sort of the unconstrained vision of, of uh, humanity, that we are perfectible, that, you know, everything is within our grasp and, you know, it's all about progress. But uh, and, and when you read the book, uh, if you don't know who Thomas Sowell is, reading it He's very even-handed. He really makes, I think, the best case for both sides and, and, and really allows the exponents of both sides to make their best case. And so when you're reading it, you're reading the unconstrained vision and you're saying, yeah, yeah, no, that all sounds great. Like, I'm all in for that. And then you read the other side and you're like, oh, oh, no, actually, those are some good points. And I, I see where the quest for cosmic justice actually ends not in utopia, but in, in a hellish nightmare. Um, you know, at the, at the same time in college, I was reading, uh, I was doing a book report, not a book report. I was doing a, a report on, uh, my favorite president who was Thomas Jefferson, uh, who by the end was no longer my favorite president. Uh, but in the exchanges between Jefferson and Adams, uh, especially in the, you know, in their later years, they wrote a series of letters back and forth, sort of explaining themselves. You read Jefferson's soaring rhetoric and you're, you're swept up and you're moved. But then you read uh, Adam's more sober and judicious responses and you say, oh, yeah, no, no, Jefferson is totally wrong about the French Revolution uh, and, and Adams is right. And this is not leading to paradise. This is leading in a very bad direction. Um, uh, there's another 
book. I'm, I'm, I'm cheating here. Like I said, it's You're very hard, cheating, very hard. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it's, it's along the same lines as uh, souls conflict of visions. And that's by Yuval Levin called the great debate uh, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, the birth of right and left, which I think in some ways is actually even more illuminating than Thomas souls uh, where he focuses just on these two um, these two thinkers, neither of whom were American, but I think to a great extent really have shaped the American debate. Uh, you know, why is it that, you know, people on one side versus the other seem to be aligned on a whole wide variety of issues that seem totally unrelated? Well, really, when you get back to first principles and you understand, you know, what's at the core of these debates, uh, you see why people are are you know on the same side of the issue on things like a, a abortion and the environment and taxes, which, which seem totally unrelated. Uh, so those two books, I think, read in concert, are really wonderful uh, when it comes to, uh, and both very very even handed too. So those are my recommendations. Can't be mad, Jason, because those are fantastic recommendations. In fact, we had Yuval Lenin um, on the podcast early on. I think it was our sixth or seventh guest. So if if, if our our listeners want to go back to that. It was, was a fascinating conversation. Um, so again, uh, we're here with Jason, Jason Bedrick. Uh, he's a currently a research fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and we are so grateful, Jason. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all you do to uh, help families learn more of the, the best that's been thought and said in the West and around the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.